Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 this morning uh, here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. If you're a guest with us or haven't been with us in a while, we have been walking through the book of Exodus together. But as we've been drawing near uh, towards Easter Sunday, this coming Resurrection Sunday next Lord's Day, uh, we've taken a break from our Exodus study to spend a few weeks looking at some passages in Romans. Uh, the reason is because so often when we talk about the gospel, and in fact when many of us share the gospel, uh, these are the very verses we use in speaking of the gospel. You may be familiar with the Romans Road, uh, Romans 3.23, that teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Uh, Romans 6.23, that tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, that tells us that God demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if we'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And then that beautiful verse, Romans 10, 13 says, All who call, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, these are the passages we hold tight to when we speak of the gospel. And so uh, what we've been doing over these last few weeks and what we'll be doing uh, today and next week is just looking at some of these passages in their context. And so today, that passage I mentioned, Romans 5, 8, that speaks of the death of Christ, we're going to look at in its context here in Romans 5, 1 through 11, in hopes that we can better understand what this passage is teaching us about the gospel, uh, specifically uh, about what it tells us in regards to how we can have peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ in hopes that we can learn about that and respond to it in repentance and faith. So we're going to look at Romans 5, 1 through 11, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, if you will, as I read God's Holy Word for us this Lord's Day. Uh, this is God-breathed through the Holy Spirit and through the Apostle Paul as God works in him. And he writes this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received now reconciliation. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank You that we can come to You today in Christ alone, through the finished work of Jesus Christ 
on the cross. Lord, as we come into this holy week on this Palm Sunday, we are reminded that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, He did it with a cross in mind. And as we prepare to celebrate next Lord's Day, and not only the cross, but the resurrection, Lord, would You help us to see what was achieved through that cross and through that resurrection? Would You help us to see today, through this text, the gospel of Jesus? Would You help us to respond in repentance and in faith? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have a little subtitle or a heading there in your Bible, it probably says something about peace. A peace with God through faith. Peace with God through placing our faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul begins this section in Romans 5 by speaking of this peace we can have. As we consider what it means to have peace with God, I want us to consider just the context we live in today. We live in a world where people want to be at peace. We live in a world where people use this phrase, peace a lot. They talk about inner peace. They talk about peace of mind. They talk about being at peace with themselves and being at peace with others. Uh, you can find no shortage of articles, of, of magazine articles, of books written about what it means to have peace in your life. You go to the bookstore and look for a book on a peace. Go online, you'll find books that talk about the art of peace, searching for peace, maintaining peace, and finding peace in a frantic world. We also find across our culture, there are many who speak about how it is we might find peace. And we hear it sang about all the time. One popular artist of our day said it this way, you'll never find peace of mind until you listen to your heart. Now that's a popular phrase we often see and hear in songs and see on bumper stickers and on t-shirts. If you want to find peace, well, follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Another leader of a world religion said it this way, do not let the behavior of others destroy your inner peace. That there's this thinking that we can kind of be at peace by blocking others and blocking negative people and negative thoughts out of our lives. Another, one of the most famous poets that's ever existed, wrote it this way, nobody can bring you peace but yourself. Again, this thought that we have this inner peace we need to strive for. And then a best-selling author of our day said it this way, we don't realize that somewhere within us all, there does exist a supreme self who is eternally at peace. I read these quotes to you today because they represent, I think, really the culture we live in, this thought that in order to have peace, we need to look inside our hearts. That in order to have peace, we need to kind of block out the negativity in our lives, and then we can really be at peace with ourselves and have this inner peace. And yet when we come to the Word of God, we find something very different. When we come to the Word of God, we find this teaching that when we look into ourselves, we find unrest. When we look into ourselves, we find a lack of peace because when we look into our hearts and we're honest with ourselves, we find depravity and we find sin. And so the question is, how then can sinful people, how can depraved people truly find peace? Well, that's exactly where 
the Apostle Paul takes us in Romans chapter 5 as he talks about the peace we can have with God and makes an important distinction that we need to understand in our day. Now, we live in a culture and a context, especially in the church, where everybody wants to have the peace of God in their lives. In fact, one of the passages I hear quoted often that I share myself is Romans 4, 7. It talks about the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And so oftentimes in trials and difficult moments, you'll hear somebody say, well, I'm, I'm just going to pray for you that you'll have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And that is a good thing to pray for. But the reason that so many of us are lacking the peace of God today is because we don't have peace with God today. And according to the Scripture, if you and I don't have peace with God, well, we can't experience the peace of God. So how is it that we might have this peace of God, peace with God? And what is the distinction between having the peace with God that then leads to the peace of God? Well, that's exactly what Paul has been building up to in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He is talking to them about this peace that comes from God as a result of having peace with God through the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's why he begins this letter in Romans 1-7 by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's helping them to see the only way you can have peace with God is through Jesus. And he goes on to tell them in Romans 2 about the glory and the honor and the peace that comes to those who walk with Christ and follow His Word. But then he gives this warning in Romans chapter 3. He says, for those who don't know Christ, he writes, the way of peace they have not known. Paul makes it very clear that you cannot know the peace of God if you do not have peace with God. So how might we have this peace with God? And what is the fruit that comes from it? Well, that's what we'll look at as we walk through this text. Beginning with the first point there in your outline. We have peace with God. Because Jesus died for us. We have peace with God because Jesus died for us. Now I'm going to take the middle and last part of this passage before we go back to the first part because it's there in the middle there in verse 8 that that's the passage we're talking about here. That that Christ died for us. Four words that really are the summation of the Gospel. Christ died for us. Four words that to you this morning, to me this morning, should be the greatest news you've ever heard. Christ died for us. Is the foundation of what we believe as we consider the Gospel that again teaches us that all have sin and the wages of sin is death. That this death penalty must be paid. And Romans 5.8 gives this great hope and great promise in these four words. Christ died for us. Not only do these words give us great hope, not only are these words the essence of the Gospel, these four words are what set our Christian faith apart from every other belief system in the world today. See, just about every belief system there is, every world religion, every system of faith has the, the same belief in some way or another, that something is wrong with us. They teach that we have a problem with sin. Now, they may not call it sin, 
They may call it you know, wrong behavior, bad thoughts, bad feelings, bad karma. But universally what most world religions teach is that we've got this problem, this lack of peace within ourselves, and we have to reconcile this somehow in order to truly be at peace with God. And so they all have their different ways of dealing with this sin, this wickedness, this bad karma, this lack of peace. And so, for example, in Buddhist, there's this teaching that in order to reach this, this ultimate state of peace, of nirvana, where you're one with God, one with all things, we need to follow their teaching and their eightfold path. And in Buddhism, this is a process of emptying out yourself of all negativity, of all these, these wrong things, wrongdoings, wrong thoughts. You're emptying yourself out until you can be rejoined with the Spirit of God and experience this nirvana. The Hinduism teaches that through worshiping a particular god, and there's over a million of them to choose from, but through worshiping one or more of these gods that you can get rid of the bad karma in your life. You can replace that with good karma. You do that through a process that they believe is called reincarnation, where you have multiple attempts and multiple lives and multiple efforts to get it right. And so perhaps you come back in this life in a poor state, lacking privilege. Well, that's paying for the bad karma from your last life. And if you do better in this life, well then you'll come back in the next life in a better situation. And ultimately, they teach, you can escape this system of reincarnation when you finally are at one with the Spirit of God or the gods. The Hindu, along with the Buddhists, believe these things are achieved by our works. Islam teaches that through obeying the teachings of the Quran, following the five pillars of Islam, that your good works might outweigh your bad works and you might be allowed into paradise. In fact, when you study Islam, you find something familiar that you may have heard from people who are Christians. This idea that one day you're going to stand before a holy God and there's going to be these scales that weigh your works. I've preached many times about how the Scripture doesn't suggest this in any way, shape, or form, and yet so many believers have this idea that if their good just outweighs their bad, they'll be okay. Well, that's a teaching from Islam, not from the Scripture. And that teaching says that if the good outweighs the bad, then perhaps you'll be allowed into paradise. In fact, in the Islamic religion, the only way you're guaranteed into paradise is martyrdom and service to Allah. Again, a system based on your works. And the list goes on universally. You can study religions all over the world. You can study systems of belief. And you will find in every one of them this thought that we have a problem and that we can fix this problem if we will do these things. And then we come to the Bible. And then we come to the Christian faith. And then we come to a very different teaching. A teaching that says we are not saved by our works. A teaching that says there's nothing we can do in order to save ourselves by our works. A teaching that says it is only through the work of Jesus Christ alone that we might be saved. See, these other systems of belief, they they all involve faith, but for them it's faith plus works equals salvation. But friends, hear me. The Christian belief is that faith plus Jesus' finished work on the cross equals salvation. There is absolutely nothing that you bring to the table this morning. 
that there's nothing you've ever done or that you will ever do that will turn the face of a holy God to look down on you or me and say, oh, well, look at that. Richard's really impressing me today. We don't earn our salvation through our works. But the Scripture says when we truly experience salvation, when we truly respond to the Gospel through repentance and belief, well then works should be a result of that. Saving faith should produce works in our life. But friends, works cannot produce saving faith in our life. And that's the distinction we see when we look to the Scripture. And I think that's the distinction we see here as Paul is unpacking what it means to have peace with God. It comes entirely through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's what he teaches to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where he writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. And so Paul here is making it clear, it's not our works that save us, it's the work of Jesus that saves us. And then he goes on to pretty much point out what it is that we do bring to the table. And notice what he says here. In verse 6 he says, we were weak. <laughs> that that word implies not just a, a lack of physical ability, it implies that we were sick. Something was wrong with us. It says in verse eight or verse 6 there, we were ungodly. Verse 8, he refers to us as sinners. And notice the reference in verse 10. He describes us as enemies. Paul's making it very clear that it's not our efforts or our standing that earn us or merit us salvation. It's completely the finished work of Jesus Christ because we're the ones who are weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. And it's in this condition, in this state that he says... Jesus died for us. Now notice what he does with this. He, he kind of gets us into this mindset of considering who, who might someone die for. Now notice there in verse 7, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. And we have all these hypotheticals we might throw out in different scenarios where we consider, would we die for someone? I think most of us as parents... Hopefully all of us in this room, uh, hopefully we would lay down our lives for our children. We would lay down our lives for our grandchildren. Husbands and wives, hopefully you, you would lay down your life for your spouse. You would, you would die for that person. We use that phraseology sometimes. Well, I, I'd take a bullet for them. I, I'd die for them. And so we kind of have this notion in mind, yeah, yeah we, would, we would die for someone we love, we care for. But, but this goes a step further in considering who else will we die for? There, there's people in our world today that take on professions and careers and callings in which they agree that they will lay their lives down for others. Our servicemen and women, first responders, police officers, firefighters, others who make decisions that they are going to lay down their life for their fellow man if needed. I was reminded of this over the weekend. Perhaps you saw the news story that came out of France. There was an Islamic terrorist in a small town in southern France who had already killed multiple people, went into a supermarket there, killed two others, and took a woman hostage. As the French police arrived on the scene, there was one officer, a lieutenant colonel, who assessed the situation and made a proposal to the terrorist that, that he would offer himself 
in exchange for this female hostage. The lieutenant colonel put his gun down. He kept his radio on so that his other officers could hear what was taking place. And he went through this process where he exchanged himself for this hostage. He essentially bought her freedom with his life. He had no way to defend himself. He just had his radio on. A couple hours go by and then his fellow officers heard gunshots. He was killed by this terrorist. We hear, we read stories like this and we look to that lieutenant colonel and we say, how heroic of him. Well, we consider, would I do that for my fellow man? We have far too many situations that are no longer hypothetical in our culture today where we're being asked to consider, will we lay our life down for someone? If the shooter was in our children's school, if the gunman's in our church, well, would we take the bullet for others? We ask these questions, and many of us respond with, well, well, I hope I would. I hope I'd run towards the danger. I hope I would lay down my life for my fellow man. But here's where the Gospel is radically different. God here says, not only is a life being laid down for good people, for people who might be considered righteous, He lays down His life for the terrorists. He lays down His life for the gunmen. We might consider, oh yeah, I'd go in there and I'd take the place of that hostage. I'd take the place of that child. But would you take the place of the terrorist? Well, would you take the place of the gunman? And what he does here, Paul begins to turn this in such a way that we begin to understand that, friends, when we consider the glory and the majesty of God, we are the enemy. And Jesus, He said, died for us while we were still sinners. While we were ungodly. While we were enemies. And the reason that so many of us struggle this morning, and perhaps you're struggling right now, to fully comprehend the depths and the beauty of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is because you don't realize how messed up you are. It's because we don't consider ourselves enemies of God. When we think of ourselves as pretty good people, pretty decent people, we don't watch the news and see the terrorists and the gunmen and say, oh, we identify with that. The Scripture says what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. The Scripture says we are indeed sinners. The Scripture says here we are ungodly. We are sinners. We are enemies. And friends, if you don't understand that, if you don't get the bad news, you're never going to get the good news. If you don't understand what you are apart from Christ, you'll never truly see your need for Christ. And that's why you're left with this notion that, well, maybe my good will outweigh my bad because you think you're pretty good. The Scripture has a way of showing us who we truly are. Of showing us that apart from Christ, we are the sinner, the enemy, the ungodly. And so Paul here says that in order to have peace with God, we first need to understand that Jesus died and why He died. And second, point two there, we can have peace with God because Jesus reconciled us to God. And so because of the death of Jesus, now we can experience this reconciliation. Notice what he says in verse 9. 
Uh, Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. He's saying that we are saved from the coming wrath of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because Jesus died in our place on the cross. You and I deserve to die for our sin. Again, this is where that little inner voice comes in. Well, you know, Pastor, I don't know about the rest of these people, but I'm not that bad. Well, we think of ourselves as pretty good people. But again, I'll propose what I've proposed before. How many of you, given the opportunity, would wear a device that would broadcast everything that goes through your mind for 24 hours? 24 minutes. 24 seconds. During this sermon. Trust me on this. I don't want to hear what's in your mind right now, and you sure don't want to hear what's in mine. We are far more messed up than we think we are. And so often, as I mentioned before, we we think of sin horizontally. We compare ourselves to other people. We judge ourselves based on the terrorist and the gunman. We look to ourselves and we look around and we feel like we're doing pretty good. But what the Scripture says is, no, turn that this way. And how do we compare with a holy, righteous, sovereign God? And then try to grasp the fullness of the Gospel that God made Him who knew no sin to bear the penalty for our sin on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Friends, the cross of Jesus doesn't just put a band-aid on our problems. It heals us. The cross of Jesus doesn't take us through some program through which we might get better. The cross of Jesus reaches into our lost, depraved hearts and it pulls out the cancer of sin, and it 100% heals us. And in doing that, what Paul says here is then we are reconciled to God, verse 10. And then we now have received reconciliation, verse 11. That, that word reconciliation, well, we need to understand what he's saying here because we take it in a very different context in our world today. In fact, the definition you'll find in the dictionary of reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relations. So so when we think about reconciliation, we think about people who once were friends and now have issues coming together and reconciling again. That's why when we talk about marriage counseling, we talk about marriage reconciliation. Because the assumption is there that they started out liking each other. I mean, I've had the opportunity to officiate a number of weddings, go through premarital counseling, talk to a lot of folks before they got married. Let me tell you something I've never experienced. I've never had this bride or groom-to-be, when I asked them why they wanted to get married, I've never once had someone look at me and say, well, you know what, Pastor? First of all, I just want to make sure you know, I hate her guts. And then her turn and say, well, listen, let me tell you about how gross and offensive and loathsome he is. I cannot stand to look at him. I consider him my mortal enemy. I wish he would die. That's not happened yet. Not in premarital counseling at least. No, what's happening there? Oh, well I just love him so much, Pastor. 
Oh, they're just the light of my life. Oh, I just love, oh, they, I've never felt like this before. And then it's my job to say, well, let me tell you what's coming, Jack. Because <laughs> one day you're going to look down and that ring's not going to be as shiny. And then you're going to look over and think, why can't she put the top on the toothpaste? 20 years. It's this much effort. And then she's going to walk in the kitchen and think, why can't he put the strainer in the sink? That is why it's a strainer, because it goes in the sink. Who in their right mind takes a strainer and takes it out of the sink? That's where it belongs. Or, why can't he figure out the difference between colors and whites when he does the laundry? Kind of gets on my nerves. Now, they don't necessarily look at each other like they're mortal enemies, but then you start seeing some need for reconciliation because as we all know, it goes far beyond the toothpaste and the strainer and the clothes, doesn't it? And then over time, there's sin that's unrepented of and there's sin that's not dealt with and we see this ooey-gooey, feels-good relationship start to have rocky roads and problems and that's where we see the need for reconciliation. But in that context, what we're looking at is two people who once were friendly with one another and we're trying to get them to be friendly with one another again. That's what we think of when we think of reconciliation between friends. Two people who were friends with one another, now there's been some conflict, we want them to reconcile to be friends with one another. That's what we think of when we think of reconciliation. But hear me. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 5. This word reconcile he uses means the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. So what God is doing when He reconciles us to Him is He is taking the enemy and He is making them a friend. Nowhere in the Scripture do we read that we're born at peace with God. No, we read that we're born as enemies of God. David, who was referred to in the Scripture as a man after God's own heart, he, he said this of himself in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David there is not saying, My mama did something bad, and then I came about. David is saying that at the moment I was conceived, I inherited the sin nature of my father Adam. The Scripture teaches that we did as well. And that's why Paul says we are ungodly. We are sinners. We are enemies. But the good news, the good news is that through the death of Jesus now, we who were once enemies of God have been made friends of God. That we who were once opposed to the things of God now have been made friends with God. We were enemies and now we're friends and it's made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ and Christ alone that's why paul writes in colossians 1 that through jesus god is able to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and because we can now have this peace with god because of jesus and his death and we can be reconciled with god well now he tells us verse 11 that this peace enables us to rejoice 
We can rejoice now because of this peace. We also rejoice in God, Paul writes, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That, that word rejoice in the Greek literally means we can shout about it. We can be jubilant about it. We can be excited about it. We used to fall short of the glory of God. Now we can rejoice in the glory of God because we were once enemies and now we are friends. We have been reconciled to God. And that is news that we alone can celebrate because of Christ's finished work. That the Muslim cannot rejoice in being reconciled to God. The Hindu cannot rejoice in being reconciled to God. The Muslim cannot rejoice in being reconciled to God. The religious person, the person who professes to be a Christian in our culture today, but has not put their faith in Christ alone, who's trusting in their works, they cannot rejoice in being reconciled to God. All these other religions, all these other beliefs, they can only hope that they might one day be reconciled. But the Scripture says we can trust that we have been reconciled through the finished work of of Jesus Christ. And that enables us to rejoice, not just in our salvation, but now we go back to verses 1 through 5. The peace with God, point 3 there. Peace with God enables us to rejoice as well in our sufferings. Now, this part doesn't make any sense to the world. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to trust in Christ, this probably won't make a lot of sense to you either. But something unique that God does through the Gospel of Jesus is He enables us then to rejoice, not just in our salvation, He says, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because our hope is in the glory of God and our hope is in the future glory of a new heaven and a new earth. Our hope cannot and should not be in this world. That's what Paul's telling us. It says verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. To rejoice in our sufferings, we need to realize that God is sovereign over our sufferings, that He has a purpose for our sufferings. And when we begin to understand He has purpose in them, He is sovereign over them, it allows us then to rejoice in them. Why? Verse 3, because suffering produces endurance. See, when you suffer, you will either run from God or you will run to God. And what the Scripture calls us to do in our suffering is to run to God, to run to His Word, to run to our knees. And that produces a growth in our lives. Suffering drives us to the Word, drives us to our knees, and grows us as a believer. That's why verse 4 he says, endurance produces character. See, suffering grows us to be more and more like Jesus. There's a great note in the ESV study Bible that says it this way. The people of God rejoice not only in future glory, but in present trials and sufferings. Not because trials are pleasant, but because they produce a step-by-step transformation that makes believers more like Christ. And as a result, Paul writes verse 4, then that produces hope. A hope that comes from a trust that God is sovereign. A hope that comes from a trust that God has a purpose for this suffering. 
I hope that God is allowing this suffering in my life and in your life that I might grow in my hope and you might grow in your hope of Him and in what is to come. And that then allows us to have the peace of God. Because it's only through this process that we might have peace with God. One commentator said it this way, we rejoice in suffering because it is the path to spiritual maturity and glory. The great saints of God all agree. Ask Abraham and he'll direct your attention to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Jacob and he'll point you to his stone pillow. Ask Joseph and he'll tell you about the dungeon. Ask Moses and he'll remind you of his trials before Pharaoh. Ask David and he'll tell you about his songs that came in the night. Ask Peter and he'll speak to you of his denial. Ask John and he'll tell you of Patmos. Ask Jesus and he'll tell you of the cross. And then he writes this, hear this. Blessings are poured out in bitter cups. Blessings are poured out in bitter cups. I have sat with far too many of you in this room as you've suffered. I've yet to hear one person say to me they would choose it. But there is one who did. Jesus Christ chose the bitter cup. And He chose it to the glory of the Father And He chose it that you and I might be saved. And He chose it that one day we might drink from a cup that's no longer bitter. That we might drink from a cup at the banquet table of Christ in a new heaven and of a new earth. And in order to accomplish this, Jesus chose to drink from the bitter cup. Matthew tells us on the eve of His crucifixion that Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. Jesus chose the path of suffering in perfect obedience to the Father in order that the Father might be glorified. And He calls us to do the same. But we don't get to choose knowing what's coming ahead. We get to choose how we're going to respond now that we're in it. And we get to choose whether we will trust by faith in the Word of our Lord and will seek the peace of God that comes through peace with God or we will choose to go out into the world and seek the fleeting desire of peace that so many are after. And yet it escapes them. We can have this peace with God and this peace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ who the writer of Hebrews tells us where we're to look to Him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He endured it because He knew what was to come. And friends, you and I can endure our trial and our suffering today because God has told us what is to come. And we can hold on to that. And we can trust in that. And we get that opportunity every time we come to the Lord's table together. I've said this before. It's 12 o'clock. 
Nobody's going to drink this thin boy juice and eat this chiclet cracker and need a nap. Now, nobody's going to take this and say, oh, I've never been this full. <laughs> That's not what it's intended to do. It is intended to whet your appetite for something greater, and that greater is not at Chili's or the Mexican restaurant in Bardstown today. That greater is a banquet table with the King that is to come. And when we take this cup, we're reminded we can take it because Jesus chose the bitter cup that one day we're going to drink a new cup and a new heaven and a new earth with our Lord and all things are made new. And this suffering that we are in right now, friends, it is but for a moment. And it will pass quickly in light of the glory that is to come. Will you put your hope there today?